Dari Okuju of MFS Africa. How's it, man? Very good, very good. So what's next, man? What's next at uh, MFS Africa? Well, you know, just to maybe a few words about what we do at MFS Africa. We are a Pan-African company that uh, uh, aggregate mobile money wallets, mobile money platforms across Africa. Uh, we are now in about 22 countries. We have a partnership with pretty much all the major networks, and we connected more than 100 million mobile wallets now across Africa. We also, so we headquartered here in Johannesburg. We have, uh, you know, staff members from everywhere in Africa. We, we like 13 nationalities. We speak 25 languages. I'm very excited to be part of uh, this wave of fintech uh, uh, in Africa. So tell me a little bit about the structure. How much of it is a tech complement? How much of it is administrative? Uh, how much of the heavy lifting is outsourced to partners? Give me a sense. Uh, uh, I'll say 80% of it is tech. You know, what, what we do is uh, essentially we want to enable cross-border transfer or, or payment, which means uh, enabling someone from Uganda to send money to someone in Rwanda or from Kenya to Tanzania and so on and so forth. Uh, our tech layer, our platform itself, connect to the mobile money platforms and will take care of things like currency exchange, will take care of things like uh, know your customer, compliance rules, real-time checks, all the money laundering checks, and so on and so forth, while still allowing transactions to be processed within seconds. Uh, you know, really, really real-time. So a lot of it is through automation. We only 35 people in the whole company, and we do business in 22 countries. So you can imagine the level of automation that has to go into that. But there is a great deal of, uh, of uh, I would say, compliance and financial processes. So we, we handle a lot of money, you know, between the different countries and between different our partners. But our motto is automation. Like I always tell my team, if we have to answer the phones twice a week, we will lose money. So things have to work, and they have to work in a very automated way, where there is reconciliation, where there is cons- resolving customer constraint, rolling back when the transaction fails, and things like that. So highly, highly automated, yeah. So your uh, compatriots across the ocean in more developed markets, what sort of challenges would you experience working on the continent that they might find totally foreign to them? Well, I think the first word is just uh, the basic channel that our, our users use, you know. And here in South Africa, is actually almost a frontier, but pretty much north of Limpopo, people use a lot something called USSD, which is a very, very rudimentary channel to try and do any type of service. So when you talk to someone from the U.S., from Europe, and to some extent even to Cape Town, you know, they wonder why you just you don't just do an app <laughs> when, when you're trying to do a money transfer, why, why people can't just you are. But the reality is a large, a vast number of people across Africa are still using feature phone or even more basic phone. So USSD, a very rudimentary channel, you have to get things done in 45 seconds. Otherwise, the, the channel will close and you still want to get Forex through. You want to get customer to confirm a quote. You want to get run all this KYC check and the ML check that I want to tell you. So ability to really work on a on a, what is actually an unfriendly channel uh, for for developers, it's something that's quite unique to the rest of the continent. And then obviously things like you know your data backup strategy because you don't know when the electricity will go off, whether your servers will stay off when it rains. Some of the link internet links to some countries are still running on Vsat. You know, it rains, then transaction won't go through. So, and you need to know that it's actually raining in that part of Africa, Guinea-Bissau. That's why you, you're getting so much complaints. So, I mean, those are kind of unique elements that, that you usually, usually won't see. But I must also say that all of that is changing. 
in, in the good way. So if we're able to operate in those environments, well, imagine what it will be when we have all the infrastructure. So let's talk about the politics of mobile money. And um, a lot of the innovation in many African countries has been brought in that space hasn't come from the financial institutions or the legacy institutions. It's come from the mobile operators or or just fintech disruptors, you know, outside of the space entirely. And it's taken a lot of countries by surprise, lawmakers by surprise. What's your sense of what's going on in, on the continent? I know in Uganda, there have been rumbles, Kenya, everywhere in Nigeria, lawmakers trying to make sense of it. What's your sense? Well, I think, I think it's actually the, the prolongation of what happened with mobile. You know, uh, the success of mobile caught a lot of people by surprise. And mobile money, while it's not completely a success everywhere else, I think everybody agrees on the potential and the, the far-reaching implications in terms of development. One of them being what people usually will term financial inclusion, you know, bring more people into the financial system, in the formal financial system. I like to talk about digitalization simply, like whether people want to buy financial services or not, the simple fact that we can move transactions into the digital world, irrespective of what they buy, is actually quite important. So I think we move from, in the early days, a uh, lot of the policies and uh, the, the lawmakers were influenced by banks, and banks were trying to protect their position. And, and in some countries like Nigeria, I run deeper because mobile networks were mostly foreign control, where our banks were mostly local control. So it can run quite deep in terms of you know, how, the, how the scene and the law respond to that. Do you think that's behind some of the, the interesting power struggles between the Nigerian government and MTN? Oh, not, not this specific issue that, that we are talking about now, but in general, Nigeria is the only country in Africa where mobile networks are not allowed to do mobile money. And now that's blankly put in, into the legal framework for mobile money. And I think, yeah, I think it goes, it goes to all those, you know, th those dynamics we're at play. However, we're now like five, seven years in, uh, going 10 years in some countries, and I think there is enough proof point now across Africa that when you let the market play, when you let the innovation to come, people ultimately benefit. And I think more and more lawmakers are looking toward that. They are getting more pragmatic about it and looking at the financial inclusion, the developmental agenda, and, and the ability of the technology to just make life simple for a lot of people across Africa. So I'm quite hopeful. We've seen a lot of good changes. Uh, regulatory, regulatory barriers used to be number one barrier to this industry five years ago. I think it's no longer the case. They still, we, we have learned to navigate the regulatory and the framework has become far more predictable than it has been in the past. So as the technology that your company puts out there to enable banks and financial institutions, mobile networks to engage in mobile money, as it becomes more commonplace, how is the model of the way you do business going to change, do you think? We think it's not easy, that easy to make it commonplace. You see, because... If you take Africa, you're talking about 54 different countries, right? And in each of these countries, you're talking about three, four different mobile networks, each of them with their version of mobile money, and then few uh, banks and few other independent partners. Now, if you are a company like, say, South Africa Airways, or takealot.com, or, you know, anyone sitting here say, okay, I want to be able to do business with consumers across Africa in a digital manner, which is where everybody's going. Everybody's talking about the digitalization or digital transformation. Well, one way is to now go around and manage to get some sort of integration with all these people in, you know, 54 times 5 times whatever, or to work with someone like MFS. So I think 
we, we believe that there is, we have spent five, six years building this, laying these pipes, you know, pulling pipes across Africa to connect, to simplify how people engage across the continent, at least how they settle financial transactions. And, and we believe there is still room for that for a long time. Our own goal is to make 100 million people transacting digitally per month across sub-Saharan Africa. If we achieve that, we, whatever form, you know, it might not be in the form that we know today and how the company is and is structured, but if we achieve that overall, we know job has been done. That, that's kind of what we have to. And we're not necessarily hang up in a particular model, business model, or a particular technology or so on. It's, it's more, what's the end game? When, when are we happy? And we're happy when 100 million people are able to transact digitally every month across Africa. And I'm no fanboy, but I'd imagine Bitcoin could be potentially be a huge simplifier to the complexity that currently exists across markets and in, in attempts to transfer money across. I mean, should it be regulated, well, uh, you know, br- widely accepted? How would that change the game, do you think? Well, in our view, Bitcoin is no different to the dollar. You know, at the end of the day, if we all agree that, well, we're all going to transact in dollars, it's just a matter of now how do you get the dollar when you need it, how is it is, and then how do you move it? So in our world, the way we operate our hub, it's just a bunch of nodes dealing with the hub. And each node is characterized by something we call the settlement currency. And each of our nodes, and M-Pesa in Kenya is a node, uh, Standard Bank in South Africa could be a node. Uh, you know, MTN in Kodiwa is a node. Uh, Echo Bank in Togo is a node. So, and each of them decide which currency they want to be settled in. Now, if someone comes to us and says, well, I want to be settled in Bitcoin, it doesn't make a real difference to us. However, however, having said that, so from a technical and business model point of view, Bitcoin fits completely onto our hub. But there are more implications around, you know, you know, the public confidence, regulators' confidence, other parties' confidence into what Bitcoin is and so on and so on. And I think, to some extent, unjustified concern, in my opinion, but real concern that we have to deal with. So when those concerns go away, we will be very happy to deal with it. We don't see it as something disruptive. In, in another way, we see what they call, you know, cryptocurrency or blockchain technology as something that can help in the back end simplify a lot of settlement between parties and we're working actively on that but bitcoin as a retail proposition we think there is a bit of uh, you know kind of press and a sentiment around challenge around it that needs to be overturned in africa for it to become a reality but we watch it closely it's nowhere near that right now is it no it's not because you have to just look at the big markets right you have to look you know the nigerias the kenyas the south africa and Kenya, where it's practically all but been declared illegal. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, you, you, it needs to crack those markets before some real traction uh, can come in. Again, unjustified to some extent, some of the, I would say, trial and some of the things that are said about it. But, you know, you have to work with that. So whoever is dealing in Bitcoin or trying to make a Bitcoin exchange need to be mindful of that and then work on that. It has just regulators are just people like us. They can be convinced. So I'm going to ask a tough question because it's, it's, if you answer honestly, it might sort of cast into a bad light some of the people you do a lot of business with, the, the incumbents, the, the large banks, the financial institutions that have been part of the fabric of, of finance across the world for decades. Um, they're being disrupted by a, a new breed of, of fintech operators. What are they doing wrong and how do they fix it? 
I think it will be, again, unjustified to throw too much stone at them because every company, every industry goes through this. 15 years ago, 16 years ago, when I started working as a consultant for PwC in, in Paris, we were saying this about media companies. Yeah, like, oh, you know, they're so old, they haven't transformed, they've been disrupted and so on. Look, 15 years, fast forward, media companies have transformed for the better. So I do believe banks and financial institutions can do this journey. It gets to a point in the life of any industry that you get challenged and you have to reinvent your DNA. And I think they're going through that. And some will do, will we'll manage the transition and will get it, and the other ones will die. It's as simple as that. And I think they're quite mindful of it, uh, pretty much all of them. What would you say to startup founders who might be hmm, a tad too bullish about what it actually takes to set up a, a business that can last centuries like the, the incumbents have done? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's a journey, right? You, and you need to have the stomach for it. Or at least you need to learn uh, to stomach it. And I would say, and we ourselves, I wouldn't say we, we know everything. We, we made a lot of mistakes along the way, and we learned from them. And one of the mistakes we made, and if I can give a piece of advice, is around focus. And it's around, you know, picking a pr- simple problem and solve it. And, and solve it better than anyone else. I think it sounds like cliche, but we learned the hard way to focus. And I think if you're going to attack uh, incumbent, if you're going to attack large organization like that, you have to be like laser. That's how it can cut through still because it's so focused. And if, if you're going too much direction, and sometimes the, the journey of entrepreneurship throws you in different direction. I'm not being. I'm not saying be obnoxious. Ob, ob, I don't know if that's obnoxious. Obnoxious, yes. And you need to obviously reassess where you are every now and then, and choose if you're on the right path. But you have no chance if you keep moving, you know, right, left, center, and you, you can't take them on. But if you focus, if if you pick one place that you keep hitting, eventually it falls. The advice you're giving is what we're seeing in some of the larger institutions, Standard Bank, with their Africa focus. Uh, Barclays with their with their decision, we have no idea what they're doing. Oh yet, we don't know yet. We'll find out soon. Well, they're clearly not betting on emerging markets from the from the looks of it. Well, but to be fair to them, again, you have to make the distinction of the Barclays in the UK and you have to be, and the people we deal with here in Africa. I think people we deal with here are still gonna be around, uh, at least most of them, and they might be called something else. They might be in different form, but the assets are still fantastic. I said the platform they have is still fantastic, and. You know, I think they're still, you know, it's like, again, it's a challenge that got thrown at them, and I'm sure they can make something out of it. And there's Old Mutual as well, and Bundling haven't told us what they're going to do with their Africa business. Yes, we don't know. We, but that one has always been a bit wishy-washy. I mean, there's the thing with EcoBank going on, which we watch closely. EcoBank is, a, is an important uh, it's an important partner of us. We, we, we bank with EcoBank in many countries, and... Uh, so we watch NetBank through that angle. And we'll, the, the announcement that came out, it's an interesting one. We'll watch it closely. It's, a, it's actually a bit uh, counterintuitive, right, uh, for what, what we were saying. But we might see more of those uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the months and years to come. So which niches? You're speaking to startup founders now, potential startup founders uh, listening to us right now. Which niches do you think are ripe for disruption or at least uh, domination? Which niches would you pick if you have, were forced to pick today? Well, you know, Andile, there, there is something... Something helps. You follow the money. You know, where investment been going in the, in the last two to three years. And it's a lot around e-commerce. I mean, the whole e-commerce space and simplification, both for merchants and consumers, on how they transact online. That's, 
there is a huge room for improvement and disruption in there, and there's been a lot of investment going in there, which says something about it. The other area is around the pause. I think, again, especially in Africa, I think the whole square model, you know, the dongle or whatever you want to call it, I think has some legs. And again, we've been we're seeing quite a, a lot of investment there. And the last one is personal finance, you know, whether being loans or insurance or savings product simplified in a certain manner. That also has been uh, kind of, you know, receiving a lot of attention, you know, things around unsecured lending. How do you, how many people, once you move out of South Africa, you don't have the credit bureaus anymore? Well, there's a billion people there to serve. How are you going to serve them? How, how are you going to lend to those people? How are you going to give them insurance and so on? So the whole area of personal finance, I would say, probably the hardest and probably the one that's going to take longer to come and they're going to be a lot of blood on the floor in that one. A lot of people will try and fail. But the one that will be able to reinvent and learn and capitalize will actually hit something big, I'm pretty sure. So it's interesting uh, uh, where you've chosen to. I know you've got an international career. Um, what do you think of the, the biggest blind spots in t- as far as the rest of the world is concerned is with regards to emerging markets, specifically Africa? Wow, that's a tough one. I think it will, uh, obviously, if you, if, if, you know, you can put the U.S. one side, the European, and then maybe Southeast Asia, more developed markets. I think, I think the, from the U.S., maybe they're still seeing it. Although there is a the positive narrative about Africa, I think it's still too much biased by CNN and, and, you know, the kind of the bad news that's happening, which does not allow them to go beyond those elements, to actually look at real good assets that can be transformed and so on. The demographic now is pretty known to everyone. Everyone is seeing, like, look, you know, I think by 2050, the workforce of the world will be in Africa. So when that happened in China, we saw what happened in China. You know, forget about everything else, just pure demographics, that there are going to be more people in the working class in Africa than anywhere else in the world in the next 30 years. Now, that's a blind spot. Like, what are people doing about that? What, what does this tell you about where the next big sustained growth is going to come out? I know we have had many false starts in Africa, and for good and bad reasons. Some of our own faults, some completely uh, kind of corners. But I think if anything else, just watch the demographics. Just watch where the working force, where young people are going to be. And that is pointing toward Africa. So it tells you that manufacturing will have to happen here because that's, here is where the work for working force will. Consumption will have to happen here because this is where people are going to be. So if we take a five years view, it's completely different than if you take a 30 years view. And that's why it depends. And actually, the Asians tend to be more patient. And if you look at companies out of Japan, companies out of Singapore, uh, India to some extent, they have that longer view than maybe companies out of the U.S. and maybe companies out of Europe where they're a bit more, uh, I would say, uh, influenced by the short-term volatility rather than the longer-term, you know, hard trends that we're seeing. Fantastic. We need to wrap this up, but thank you so much for your time, man. Pleasure. Thank you very much. <laughs> awesome.